from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Ronnie Tomanio. Ronnie tells the story of how he was legally blind as a kid, and his mom was so determined to find a cure for her son that she quit her job and moved out to Iowa to a chiropractic school. In addition to Ronnie's eyesight returning, his mother became a chiropractor. Ronnie is a writer who has published two children's books, Lily and Peggy and The Unexpected Day in Trust. He now hosts a radio program on the Portsmouth, New Hampshire community radio station called Don't Dis My Ability. He also made a film about suicide among the disability community called Just One More Day. Ronnie is also a poet and he shares some of his poetry in the interview. I started the interview by asking Ronnie where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? I would say I grew up in two places. Uh, my hometown is Beacon, New York, which is a small town on the Hudson River, about an hour and a half north of New York City. Later on, uh, we spent a lot of years in Iowa when I was very young. It's really an incredible story. Um, I was born legally blind. And my mother, uh, who was uh, divorced and raising two kids, uh, would not accept that. And she tried doctors and hospitals and everybody she could think of to see if I could start to uh, get my vision back. She tried everything. She tried the local chiropractor. And at that time in the 1950s, maybe like 1951, 52, something like that. There weren't a lot of chiropractors around, and they were thought to be kind of like belonging to a cult. It was really frowned upon. But she was just desperate and and, uh, trying to help me. But she started taking me to a a chiropractor, and I started to improve. And one day, uh, the doctor told her, you know, you're spending a lot of money with us, and if you want the best care for your son in the world, why don't you go out to the Power School of Chiropractic? At that time, there was only one school of chiropractic, and it was out in Iowa. And she had worked in the factory and saved money for a couple of years, and she took me and my brother uh, out to Iowa. And what's remarkable about the story is that she had not, like a lot of people who grew up in the Depression, she had not completed high school, so she actually had to study and take a GED to get a high school equivalency diploma. And off we went. I remember my job was to read the state maps going from New York to Iowa. We ended up in a little apartment, and it was like day and night, leaving a, a large extended family with a lot of aunts and uncles. And all of a sudden, finding myself and uh, not knowing anybody, this 
tiny little apartment in Davenport, Iowa. She was very clever, my mother, and she tried to figure out how she could extend her savings and make them go far and at the same time become a chiropractor. And what she did is she actually bought a house, which you could do for very reasonable sums back then. And her idea was to rent the rooms out to students. So we lived in this house, and she lived in, my brother and her lived in the house. And she went to school for four years and actually went to school in the daytime and then worked in a nursing home after school. To this day, I don't understand how a human being could actually do that, survive. But she did. She actually had to stay an extra year because to pay off her bill, to work and pay off her bill. And uh, we came ahead and lived with my aunt and uncle in Connecticut. But eventually, after about a year and a half, we settled in Speak uh, in New York, where she started to practice. But she should go back to the Iowa part again, because that's where she became the Baha'i. She was a real seeker. Uh, and just like she was seeking to find a cure or at least an improvement in my vision, she was a real spiritual seeker. She knew there was something in the world, but she didn't know what. I remember going to all kinds of odd meetings in, in Davenport. And then finally, she had a classmate, uh, Marianne Chance. She was going to chiropractic college. She was uh, much younger than my mother. And her father, U Chance, was the lawyer for Palmer School of Chiropractic. And her grandfather was a neurologist who taught at the school. So she started going to firesides and became a Baha'i sometime in the mid-1950s. And that was the big passion of her life. Chiropractic and the Baha'i faith was her big passion. How old were you at, this, at that time? I know I started second grade in Iowa. And when we came back, I started sixth grade in Connecticut. So what would that be? Maybe 10 or 11 or something? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so how bad was your vision going out there, and did your vision improve dramatically during the time you were there in Iowa? Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I still have my vision today, and I, I don't say this as some kind of... Uh, beating the drum for a chiropractic or whatever, but I don't know why. I don't, I'm careful about telling that story. I don't want people to, to think that they can get cured of all kinds of uh, maladies for chiropractic. It just happened to work for me, and I don't know why. That's all I know. Hmm. And uh, it gradually improved. And uh, Yeah, it's a big mystery to me. Yeah. So you must have been about eight or nine when your mother became a Baha'i, you think? That's probably true, yeah, somewhere yeah. in there. So what happened when you uh, returned to the East Coast? You know, our economic situation improved a great deal. She turned out to be a wonderful chiropractor, and that took her a while to get started, but she gradually uh, had a huge practice and bought the house that she was living in from her mother, and we had a good life. No, no economic worries or anything. And she was dedicated to her profession. She had tremendous energy. Commonly, she'd work from like nine o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, and 
that was her life. And I, <laughs> I remember as kids making her supper and me and my brother making her supper and things like that. She would think nothing of staying after work and talking with somebody for an hour, whether they had personal problems or she was very compassionate or if they wanted to know more about the Baha'i faith, she would talk as long as they had questions. It's mm. remarkable. I just did normal kid things and ended up going to high school. But I really wasn't interested in the faith at all. It was very difficult because there were so few Baha'is back then. Uh, a couple here and there, upstate New York, just just a handful. And I don't think kids or young people learn from books as much as maybe adults. I, I liked the people, I liked the Baha'is that I met, but I really couldn't get my head around it, you know, thinking of what all teenagers think of and sports and girls and things like that. And uh, just wasn't interested. I was getting into a little bit of trouble. I wasn't a bad kid. I never did anything really bad, but I did start drinking in high school. My mother got real mad at me and says, you know, you're not doing good here. I'm gonna, we're going to go to Greenacre together, Greenacre Baha'i School, which is a famous Baha'i school because the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, visited there in Elliott, Maine in 1912. So we didn't want to go. My brother, more, he really didn't want to go, and he was two years older than I, than I was. So here we are, packed up in our car, and we went one, one week in the summer, the beginning of July, and didn't matter what we said, we were going. So Greenacre uh, back then was pretty rustic. The first day I was there, I don't know why to this day, I, I loved it. I loved the people. Uh, there was a tremendous spirit in the air, and I didn't want to leave. And my mother was delightfully surprised. So I stayed the whole summer and uh, painted cottages. I had a great, probably the best summer of my life to this day. No responsibilities, no worries. Just painting in the sun and going to the beach and things like that. Learning, going to classes when they had them and, and developing a lot of friendships. I stayed the whole summer, and I, and I had just an incredible time, and I, and I didn't want to leave. So, Ronnie, uh, what was it about Greenacre that, that you wanted to stay? I think is how I was received there. I mean, I was, I was a lonely kid. I was a lonely teenager. Growing up in Iowa, I didn't really know anybody. It was tough. You know, I don't, I don't blame anybody. I mean, I know why my mother did it and everything, Um uh, a noble purpose, and it really saved my vision. But she either was working or going to school, so it was just me and my brother. We used to make our own meals. We did everything. We ran the house and put coal in the furnace in the wintertime and stuff. So I just think I was always lonely. So when I got to Greenacre on that summer day in July, oh, 1964 it was, I was just overwhelmed by the closeness of the people and how they treated me. They didn't treat me as a stranger. They treated me as a long-lost friend, and it really moved me. That's not to say why I became a Baha'i, because if I learned about it and it was something crazy, uh, you know, I, I would have just 
kept the friendships maybe, but not become a Baha'i. But when they explained to me about the oneness of mankind, that all the religions are one, that God educates over thousands of years and keeps sending teachers to educate us, that all made sense to me. And so the theology I had no problem with. And and I loved it. I was I was never a good student. I can't say I enjoyed school and just couldn't wait till the school day got over so I'd go play basketball or something like that. But I couldn't get enough of the classes. I'd go to the if I wasn't painting cottages that summer, I'd be in a class and I just couldn't get enough of it. And ever since that day I would come back every summer to go to Greenacre and was I guess from the age of 17, very active behind. What happened after you returned after that first summer? That was rough. It was almost like I had gone to another planet. I was on one planet that I loved. And when I got back to New York, it was I was thinking, what am I doing here? You know, this is, I don't really want to be here. That's how much I loved where I was in, in Maine. You know, I gradually got over that, but it was really going back to the same kind of lonely existence. Uh, I did make some friends in high school. So I gradually, through the connections I made in the faith, really flourished as a Baha'i. I don't know what would have happened to me if I wasn't. I mean, I would travel to firesides, which are like introductory meetings to, where people would come to find out about the faith. It was an exciting time in the 1960s and the 70s to be a Baha'i. The social agenda of the Baha'is really matched what was going on in the country. The country was uh, had a fervor for civil rights issues and elimination of prejudice and women's rights was becoming a big issue. So all of the issues that the society was involved in were issues that the faith was stressing as being very important. What happened after high school for you? High school, I, uh, as I say, I really never was great in school. All my friends were going to college, so I went to a two-year college, studied something that I absolutely hated, electronics technology, didn't care for it. I think the only thing that enabled me to survive was the faith, because uh, that was the only thing I was interested in. I... <laughs> I know it's not a it's not a role model story. I, I should have loved some kind of career. I didn't. I got out of school and uh, never really used electronics background. Couldn't stand science. I ended up in the furniture business and I had my own store and uh, and then eventually started making furniture, which I liked. Uh, and I did that for 25 years. I worked in the furniture business. We, we started getting away from uh, selling other people's furniture, and my brother and I started making our own furniture for other stores. It was a hard living. It had its good parts to it, mm-hmm. but uh, I did that uh, for years in New York and uh, continued to do it about uh, when I moved up to Maine about 16, 17 years ago. That's what I did. You know, Along the way, I started writing. That's another high point. I, I wish I knew that I wanted to write when I was young. I had really close friends, Chris and Janet Rue from 
South America, and they decided to come home, and they needed a little help getting settled in the United States, so they lived with us for a couple months, and Janet Rue at that time was uh, writing a Baha'i book. I kind of was watching her write, and I kind of got the writing bug, and she kind of, like, helped me along, and and I don't know why, but I started writing children's books. I didn't know how tough it was to get published, and I, I wrote this children's book and sent it off to uh, George Ronald Publishing in England, and everybody told me they're never going to publish it. They, nobody likes to publish behind children's books. You know, there's not much money in it. And a month later, I got back a contract. They did publish it. They published uh, Lily and Peggy. And they still publish it to this day and sell it. And then a few years later, I uh, wrote another book for special ideas in Indiana called The Unexpected Day and the Trust. And that became a connecting writing to being passionate about being a Baha'i. And so uh, I've continued to write for Baha'i Children's magazines and still write children's stories. I would do it if nobody published them or not, but I would still do it. I would want to say a hobby, but it's more than a hobby. It's really, I wish I could have done that earlier in life and just done writing, but I had to make a living like all of us do. What was the uh, turning point to have you leave New York and relocate to Maine near Greenacre? Ah, good question, Warren. Um, my mother, at the age of 62, always wanted to live in, in Elliott, Maine, where Greenacre is. And she moved up uh, with uh, a good friend of hers who was very ill. And she said, I'm going to go up there and you know, semi-retire and work a little. She ended up developing, at the age of 62, another huge practice and worked for years and then started to have some heart trouble, and and there was other factors. Uh, we wanted to raise our kids out of the metropolitan area climate. It wasn't the best for young people. At that time, uh, we had two daughters. I didn't even tell you that. <laughs> so I, I got, you know, we I got married when I was like 33 in New York, and still married 29 years later and we have two beautiful daughters and I have two grandchildren but at that time um, they were going to go into I don't know fifth or sixth grade and the schools were getting a little rough and my mother was not doing that well physically so we came up and uh, and settled in Elliott, Maine my mother turned out to be stronger than anybody thought she lasted forever, I think. She got to uh, 82 and still was practicing up till six months before her death. An amazing woman. So here we are. We stayed here, and uh, I've been on the local spiritual assembly for, I think, 14 years, maybe. That's the governing body of the, of the Baha'i faith in a, in, a, in a locality. We don't have clergy, so... The Baha'is elect nine people from their number, uh, over 21, to guide the affairs of the community. So it's a quiet life. It's not an exciting life. And eventually I got a little bit older to be making furniture. My wife talked me into working with people with disabilities. And that seemed to be a natural for Baha'is who are supposed to be servants of mankind. 
and I took to that. I loved it, and I said I should have done this years ago. I love working with people, and that loneliness I had as a kid uh, seemed to go away. I I felt useful, and I felt like I was contributing. And a couple of years ago, we had a chance to uh, start a radio show. I just walked into Portsmouth, New Hampshire Community Radio and, and with a client looking for maybe some volunteer work or just out of curiosity. I noticed their programming, and they had nothing for people with disabilities. And I, su- I said to the manager, um, how do you get on the air? How do you actually get a show? Because you don't really have any programming for people with disabilities. He told me you had to go through this training and everything. It was a long shot, but I figured, what did we have to lose? So I uh, went through the training with somebody I work with who uh, had a developmental disability, had a stroke when he was a baby. We were very fortunate. I really think it's a hand of God story because I'm not good with technical matters. And my good friend client, he was better than, than me at it, but he wasn't that great at it either. But the engineer who trained us took this as his mission in life to keep us on the air and make sure we got a, a show. We didn't know this till later, but he went to management and he said, look, I know these guys aren't up to snuff running radio boards and the technical aspect, but I'm guaranteeing that I will be their engineer for as long as they want to do the show. Don't worry about that point. That's what he did. And I didn't find out that till later why it was such a personal matter to him. But I want to get ahead of myself. We added another crew member, a young girl who's legally blind, which I could relate to, who had a muscular disorder that leaves her very weak. And she turns out to be extremely smart and with some visual aids, runs the control board now with the supervision of of our friend, the engineer. So we've been on the air about two years. We've done a show about every other uh, week, and we interview anybody and anybody that has anything to do with the issue of disabilities. We've interviewed people with cerebral palsy, cancer survivors, parents of autistic children, almost every disability illness that you can imagine we've, we've interviewed. Truly remarkable that we've been on the air this long. It's supposed to be one of the most popular shows they have. Along the way, about a year ago, we started to notice that the issue of suicide kept coming up in the interviews or the pre-interviews. You know, it's a hard time to be living for anybody. The economy's not great. It's, it's a time of, of wars in the world and a lot of stress. But if you have a disability, a severe disability, it's, it's really tough to survive mentally and, um, and there's such an atmosphere. And the issue of Suicide always seemed to be in the background somewhere. And I had noticed it before because I had worked with people with severe disabilities who talked about wanting to give up and it was too tough wanting to commit suicide. I thought one day, you know, we really can't ignore this issue. I said, why don't we just record an hour show? We'll get some people I know with severe disabilities, people that I know have this issue, and, and have them do an hour show and, let, and let's just record it. Maybe we can use it as training for people who are working in the, in the industry, who work with people with disabilities. Then about two weeks before we were going to do the show, I mentioned it at a staff meeting, and the director said, well, I know a young filmmaker. Why don't we, why don't we try and see if we can get him? And I thought, well, 
crazy as it is, why not? So the, the young man came and he filmed the hour show and we saw the rough footage. We realized we had something really special, really powerful. So we decided to do uh, other sessions. By this time, I had brought in to help with the interviews uh, a good friend who's a professional therapist and grief counselor to handle most of the interviews. And so we went back and we filmed a couple of other sessions, and um, we produced what I think is a powerful film on, on, on the issue of, of suicide prevention called Just One More Day. And it's just people, real people, telling their stories about their temptation and their attempts at suicide. At that point, I learned why our engineer had such a passionate calling to stay with the show and make sure that we'd always stay on the air because he himself had tried to commit suicide. And he, and he told the story on film, and he wasn't shy about telling it. He was just trying to save somebody's life. He was just trying to give back. And he told us this incredible story about being a school teacher 30 years ago and being diagnosed with spinal cancer. He had a loving family, and they stood by him, and he had gotten back to where he was walking with canes again after being a paraplegic, and he had fought us all the way back till he was teaching again in a wheelchair. And he, he gets a call one afternoon toward the end of the school day from his doctors in Boston, and they said, you have to come in tomorrow morning. And he asked them, well, what's wrong? He says, we don't really want to talk about it at the, on the phone. He wouldn't let him get off the phone. He said, look, you have to tell me. And they said, John, your cancer's back. You have 13 tumors. You have one behind your eye. You have one that's broken a rib. He thought he just had a muscle strain from his physical therapy. And we really don't know the outcome. You're going to have to go through a very arduous treatment of chemotherapy. There's, there's some new drugs in the market, and they may help you. We're not sure. So after going through a year of rehab, very painful, very arduous, he didn't think he could go through it again. He tells us on the film, he says, I left the school and I just couldn't face it. My plan was that on, on the uh, throughway, I was going to go by a river and I knew exactly where I could run my car into the river and kill myself. And that was his plan. But the problem was that he's going down the speed limit about 65, and someone gets right on his tail, and he goes faster. And even though he goes faster, they end up passing him, and then a truck gets along on his side, and he's boxed in. And no matter how fast he went, they went just as fast. And he goes right by this little spot where he could drive into the river, and he goes past that. And I asked him on the on the film, I says, what did, what did you do then, John? And he said, well, I didn't have any other plan. I just went home. And he goes home and he tells his wife, and she's furious that he had attempted to commit suicide. That's where we realized we had the great lesson from the film was the wife tells him, we, we will make this. We will, we will survive. Don't give up. We're going to make it. That was her words. We're going to make it. And it gave him new life. 
and he went for treatment, and miraculously, he responded, and he said, 30 years later, I'm alive. And I came within seconds of killing myself. And I had everything to live for. I had this loving wife. I had two beautiful daughters. But at that moment of when I wanted to commit suicide, that's all I could think of. I could just think of myself and the pain I was in and the future I didn't want to face. So the, the moral of the film is that it's about the power of relationships and that how they can save us. And he, and he tells on the film, 30 years later, I'm, I have this wonderful life. I have grandchildren now, he says. Ironically, when the film came out, we've had several amazing premieres of it. I've been going to conferences with it and everything. His daughter never knew the story. She came over for his birthday with one of the grandchildren, and they had never talked about this. He had never told her about this. And he emailed me after that and said, just acknowledging that I had this problem made such an enormous difference in our relationship. She finally understood her own father and why I was the way I was. We went back to uh, a brain injury center because the four people on the, on the original broadcast all had brain injuries. We showed the premiere there to the staff, to about 50, 60 members of this brain injury center, and plus students from the University of New Hampshire who do a part of their uh, school year there as interns. It was an amazing emotional experience. And the staff told me later, this is a subject that we never talked about, that it was always a forbidden subject. We knew it was there, but we never would talk about it. And I've seen some of the staff since then, and she says, now it's out in the open, and we're dealing with it. I learned a valuable lesson. I learned that if you do something, and your motives are pure, we made the uh, movie with no money, all volunteers. We had no personal agenda. We weren't looking for fame or glory or anything. It was an incredible spiritual experience working with people, doing the editing process. I found that my ability to write stories was the same ability you need to like decide what should stay in a film and not stay in a film, what works and what doesn't. It'll go down as one of the most powerful experiences in my life making this film. We still do the radio show. We still have this incredible crew. We're supported by area businesses who underwrite the show. I don't even have to beg, you know, or say, I just say, I have this show, here's what we do. And they just underwrite the show. My own, the owner of our own agency, which is a huge business, is the biggest supporter. Anything I need, flyers, pamphlets, whatever, underwrite the show. I just got to mention it to him and, uh, He's uh, right there. At our last staff meeting, he uh, showed up unexpectedly, and he started talking about the radio show and the film. And then he told the people who run his company, he says, you need to use this film for training. And I said, oh, how's this going to go? I've always wanted this to actually reach people who work with people with disabilities because they need to know this issue is out there. And they they work in a very stressful business, and they're not immune from suicidal urges. In fact, nobody is. That's the whole point of it. Given the wrong set of circumstances, it can happen to anybody. That was the big dream, and it happened. So we showed the film, which is about an hour long, 
I, I was thinking to myself, how is this going to go? This is a pretty raucous bunch. Are they going to pay attention? But you could have heard a pin drop. It was powerful, and it did its job. But since then, I've gone into uh, the Maine and New Hampshire state conferences on brain injury and got to promote the film and talk about the radio show, and I'll be doing that. What is the name of the film? Just One More Day. How can somebody find it and watch it? Well, my contribution to the cause was, since I was not a filmmaker and cameraman, I bought a DVD and CD duplicator. And with the help of another Baha'i, who did the graphics for it, it's really looking professional. We can produce our own copies. And we sell them, and that money doesn't go to me. It goes to the filmmaker who worked for free. But I just uh, shipped one to Florida, the director of nursing at a college in Florida, who's going to use it for training down there. I mean, that's exciting to me that it'll get done. I mean, this is just at the beginning of promoting this film. They can send me an email, and we'll send it. We have to mail it. It's $25. But it's just not a commercial venture. It just doesn't go to me. (laughs) I feel good when we're able to get it out there, and that's all I care about. What's your email address, Ronnie? It's ronald.tomanio, T-O-M-A-N-I-O, at gmail.com. And what's the name of your radio program? You'll get a kick out of this, Warren. It's called Don't Diss My Ability. <laughs> and it's Portsmouth Community Radio 106.1 FM. It streams live on the Internet, like, I guess, all radio shows. And they also archive spoken word shows. Just Google Portsmouth Community Radio and find our show, and you can listen to other episodes. We've had some incredible shows. I had a girl on, and I don't even know how I find these people. I thought I'd run out of guests, but I just keep finding more and more people. We had this girl on, 13 years old, and she came on with her grandmother, I had put out a word that I was, because I love poetry, I write my own poetry, and I, as long with the stories I write. And I said, I'm looking for somebody with a disability who likes to write. I got an email from another agency telling me about this young girl who writes poetry. The, the problem was she doesn't speak. She uses a, a voice communicator, and she's in a wheelchair. I'm really not sure of the technical explanation of her disability. Um, It's degenerative, not someone who's going to make it to adulthood. But she was eloquent. I had to work for weeks on this show. I had to work with the grandmother to come up with the questions, and then they had to program into her machine. And because she can only use really one hand a little bit and kind of strays on the keyboard, but eventually she can type out what she wants to type. She read some of her poetry through the voice communicator on the air, and it was really good. Are you writing today? Yes, I'm writing today. I have a book that I worked on for 10 years on the investigation of reality. I don't know the publishing date. It's not what I normally do, children's books, but it's a book for adults. It's called With Thine Own Eyes, Why Imitate When You Can Investigate. And that'll be coming out sometime in the next couple of years from George Ronald. They don't publish a lot a year, a lot every year, but what they do is high quality. So we're just at the beginning stages of that. 
what I'm doing now is recording a lot of stories. This is not a story I'm proud of, but um, about a year ago, I weighed 420 pounds. And you probably remember me at that weight. And I had bad sleep apnea. I had to take oxygen to go to sleep at night. My knees were bad. Every joint in my body ached. I thought, well, I have this beautiful grandchild, little girl, and she's never going to know her grandfather because I'm not going to make it. So I started a recording project about a year ago to put everything I, I wrote, still not published, on CDs. But something amazing happened. I um, Again, it has to do with Greenacre. I prayed to God that says, there's got to be some answer for this, you know, because no matter what I try to do it on my own, my weight keeps going up every year. And I come from a huge family. My mother was huge. My father was huge. So I didn't know what to do, but I figured that at my age, I was going to turn 63 last July, that I could take Social Security and maybe work part-time and then maybe go to some health spa or something see if I can get some help. So I sincerely prayed. I think it's the hardest I've ever prayed in my life. I says, I really got to find an answer to this. If there is one out there, please, God, show me the way. So one day I was uh, just after I had stopped working in the week and uh, was maybe working one or two days, but I had a lot of free time. I was coming into town and I decided on a whim, just to take a ride down through Greenacre. I don't even know why to this day. There was one guy getting into his car. He calls out to me, and he says, Ronnie. I said, hi. And I'm used to people at Greenacre knowing me, and I can't remember who they are. If you live in Elliott and you're around Greenacre, you just meet hundreds and hundreds of people every year, and you can't place their names after a while. And he he said, come on over, I want to talk to you. So I pulled my car over, and I didn't really know him. To this day, I don't think I really knew the guy. Maybe we had mutual friends. He said, I have to tell you that I was praying. I was up in Abdu'l-Bahá's room. Greenacre preserves Abdu'l-Bahá's room because when he was let out of prison in 1912, he came to Elliott, Maine, and he came to Greenacre, and he stayed in a room for a week in August. And they preserve that room, and people go in there and pray. It's a very special experience for Baha'is. He said, I was up in Abdu'l-Bahá's room, and I couldn't get you out of my mind. I thought that. And usually someone in that situation would kind of run, run away for the hills. Oh, let me get out of here. But I just figured immediately that it had the ring of truth to it, and that this was an answered prayer. So he said, believe it or not, 10 months ago, I was, I don't know, 300 pounds, whatever he was, and I've lost 120 pounds since then. And he said, I think this program could be the answer for you. I said, do you want to go to a meeting? And it was like an AA spinoff for people who have a food problem. There's AA spinoffs for people who have all kinds of addictive problems. Mine was uh, food so I went to a meeting, and that was 10 months ago, and I've lost 150 pounds. And now I'm not thinking about just recording my stories for one grandchild. I'm hoping I'm going to record my stories for maybe seven or eight grandchildren, because I think I'm going to be around a lot longer. But it's a remarkable story, because 
to this day, as I said, Warren, I don't really think we ever met. He's not sure we ever met. I just think we had mutual friends. He doesn't know why he was in Abdu'l-Bahá's room and he couldn't get me out of his mind, you know. I just accepted it as an answer. I didn't have to be the brightest guy in the world to see divine guidance in a situation like that. I've, I've got uh, my health back. I don't use sleep apnea equipment anymore. I don't use the oxygen. They've cut my blood pressure medicine down to this very tiny dose I take every other day, and we're having talks about getting rid of it altogether. I feel wonderful. My joints don't kill me like before. This is a second medical miracle for you. I didn't think it is like that, but when you say it, yes, it is. I mean, it just makes you wonder, you know. I, I guess in the next world I'll figure out what the meaning of all this is. I mean, a lot more worthwhile people have been uh, have been stricken down early in their life, but I don't know why I've been allowed to hang around and gotten all these chances and all this help. It's pretty remarkable. I asked Ronnie to read some of his poetry. You can hear Ronnie printing out his poetry as he describes the first poem that he will read for us. We had family friends in New York. So they're all back in New York, and the youngest daughter gets married, and it's my mother at that time was dying, and she really, really wanted to go to this wedding. She was so close to this family. They were like her children. She uh, was able to get to the wedding. My mother at that time was dying of leukemia. A few years later, oh, maybe seven, eight years, they have a little boy, and the little boy developed a brain tumor. And they went down to St. Jude's. They had an operation. They went down to that famous hospital in New York City, I can't remember, Sloan Kettering, I think. And no matter how many times they took the tumors out, the little boy, um, he didn't make it. And he died on his sixth birthday. He was trying to get to his birthday, and he didn't make it. About 100 people, they posted a video on, on Facebook of about 100 family and friends and Baha'is. This is a Baha'i family. The video was astounding, and it showed everybody just saying a prayer and letting this balloon go up into the heavens. I would never in a million years try to write a poem like that, but literally I couldn't stop it. It just came out, and I shared it with the young mother, and she loved it. So otherwise I wouldn't even read it on the air, and I wouldn't show it to anybody. But it's called The Thousand Balloons. I am a leaf in the wind that has fallen from the tree of life. No matter where the wind takes me, it is still your sky. I awake with the dawn currents. I go to sleep with the night breeze. And in between, I listen for your wisdom, heard in the rustling of the trees and the impatience of the waves yearning for your shore. It is your breath that has filled a thousand balloons. And when you exhaled, they returned to you. I asked Ronnie to share another one of his poems. Again, you hear Ronnie's printer in the background as he describes the next poem. I know some people sit down and try to write poems, and they work on them, and they work on them, and they work on them. I just don't know how to do that. I uh, Usually, I, I can't get them out of my mind. And the only way I can get them out of my mind is by writing it down. And if I write it down, then it lets me alone. <laughs> 
And I think this has something to do with disabilities. I'm really not sure. <laughs> it's called One Shoe. I dance with one-legged lady, far above the den of shuffling feet of clay. Her dress was torn. There was a run in her nylons. She held me close as a whisper and whispered, hold your head up if you want to dance with me. I had to ask, how is it that you can dance on one leg? I felt the heat on my ear before I heard her words. Patience, my love. With a wave of her hand, the music stopped. The air became silent. The room made room for us. Moving dancers became unmoving spectators. Everyone, please listen. Only the heart can look up. Never look down. Never see the garbage in the streets. Never see the crumbling sidewalks. Never see the one shoe. Ronnie, thank you so much for sharing your life and your work and your poetry with us. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ronnie Tomanio, a radio host, author, poet, and film producer. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Life is a turn of the pages, and I'll give
give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed The slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own to you Soon will our handful of days be gone And we shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark With those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own and I give them to you Can I really call these things my The day he left her, she couldn't speak Stared out the window the better part of a week She'd lived her life through him for such a long time When she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow She walked into the fire Alone and scared stiff Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the of sleep and straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get warm 
Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with Jamie's just a strangely wrapped gift what is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire Do we burn or do we glow? On my doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded It's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder What on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Send me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.